crisis. That when a civilization is losing, when it's fading, memoria, memory, tends to assert itself and, and great poets are holding on to something that's about to be lost. I think that was true with Homer, it was true with Virgil, it's true with Dante, Dante's on the verge of the modern world, the whole Catholic world is passing, it's true of Shakespeare, you can't read Shakespeare without realizing he's going back and holding on to the past everywhere and taking on all the modern states emerging. Hawthorne and, and, and uh, Melville. Mid-19th century Protestant crisis. America's in a time of crisis. Faulkner in our age. Um, Dostoevsky's writing at a time of this tremendous dislocation. Enlightenment ideas are flooding in to Russia. The, the, modern, <laughs> the modern progressive liberal living in is turning away from his past. And it's creating all sorts of problems. You can't read Dostoevsky and not be aware of that. You know, the progressive, the liberals, and traditional way of life. The traditional way of life is almost confined to the monastery, but it's being lost. So it's a period of tremendous spiritual crisis, and Dostoevsky's speaking to it. So I'd like to take some time next week when we meet and try to give a historical overview to show where, where, where Russia is in the 19th century when Dostoevsky's writing. And then we'll start. So, um, and I can't give you a, you know that there are five major sections, I think, in the novel, and I think there's 12 books. Um, I'd like to try to, I'd like to try to do this in six weeks or two months. Because I, I, I don't want anybody to be pushed at it, you know, and I, my, my one concern is if we stretch it out too long, you, you lose the sense. I'll forget the beginning. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. We're that's doing it. what? That's exactly it. If you if you stretch it out too long, you you lose a sense of how things fit together. You just won't. So the faster we do it, the more likely it is that we'll be able to hold on to the whole. Now I know that that's not an easy thing to do. You know, too fast, too slow. But somewhere around six weeks, a month, six weeks, somewhere in there, we'll try to do it and do the best we can. So, okay. You all have copies, right? Do you all have copies? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But are you going to break it up a little, you know? Mm -hmm. I always like, do, yeah. Linda. But, but you will tell us, like next week. hundred pages read, at a time. Two, mm -hmm. How many? hundred pages at a time. <laughs> but see, I don't even know how many pages are there. I haven't counted. 776. <laughs> 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 and who's counting? Good luck counting your production. We have 576 to go. <laughs> Whoever said we get older? God, I feel like we're back in sixth grade. <laughs> I, remember, I remember in college when the professor would laugh at kids because they were counting pages. You, know? you guys are bad, all of you. Some of you are worse than others. I got it. Yeah. We were debating the 15-minute rule this morning. He's not here yet. Oh God! Is this on? This recorded all that we just did. <laughs> oh God! We are in such trouble. Any any prayer requests? <laughs>
Thomas, are you okay? <laughs> Any prayer requests? Just resolution to a family upheaval. Okay. Let's start. Wait a second. Give us give us a minute. It's good to see you all again. David. You know, it doesn't count when you smile when you say that. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what that means. I don't I mean it. You know that. Good to see you all. I'm glad to see you all. And he breaks out this grin and says, oh, I didn't really That's true. <laughs> One of those cheeky Anything grins. Else he said. <laughs> cheeky grin. God. <laughs> let's, let's start. Let's start. You know that periodically I say this prayer. Um, I think I've said it with you before. It's a prayer that I say every morning in the shower to myself or about myself and Suzanne, but I, to them this morning I want to say it to everybody. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, help each of the women here this morning become the daughter you've given them to be, each of them. Help each of the men to become the son you've given them to be. Christ, you said we're no longer um, servants, we're your friends. You asked us to love as your friend. Help each one of us to be your friend, to love as you do. Holy Spirit, um, gift, help each of us to offer our lives as gifts, whatever we do. Um, in everything we do, help us to bring you to our world and to know that we're a part of your kingdom when we do. Strengthen that faith in us um, to do your will in all things. Ask a special blessing on the family that Linda's concerned about. Watch over that family. Um, families are struggling. It's just, I don't know, if it's hard to find families who not. Um, we're in a fall. So much about our world encourages us to act as if we're not. It's part of the problem, I think. Be with that family. Surround it with your care, your protection. Um, help it to find help and help um, quiet Linda's heart. You know, she carries these things with her. Um, let her be in peace, um, trusting in you, e even if things have to get worse before they get better. And I ask a special blessing on this group. Um, it needs it. <laughs> some, some, some more than others. <laughs> We are glad for the humor that we share together. Um, what a great blessing for all of us. We offer these prayers um, in gladness, in trust. In you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm going to do song for Simeon again. Um, remember, this belongs to that group of aerial poems that um, Eliot wrote when he was... Um, during the period, this period, when he writes Murder in the Cathedral, <clears throat> we've done the uh, Marina poem. The Marina poem was that poem about the father. Um, it, it, the back story for that is, remember the story of Pericles, where Pericles loses, he thinks he loses his wife and daughter, and 
late in his life discovers that they're alive and is returned to them. And I love that line. Remember, he looks at her and says, you who begot me, who begot you? Because he looks at her knowing that she's recreated him again, that his life has meaning because she's returned. And I've suggested that that's a paradisal moment. It's, a, what, it's just extraordinary to me that a poet could do that. But it's Shakespeare giving us a hint of something paradisal, that in paradise, whatever we think we lost will, will be returned. And there will be this, how, would, how do you even describe the amplitude, the degree of joy at that moment, um, that fullness? I can't imagine it not being overwhelming. He even says, cut me. Um, lest this joy overwhelm me, this sea of joy overwhelm me. Uh, extraordinary. Remember, he had, a, he had the, uh, the vision, or heard the music of the spheres, and I'm not aware of another character in, in literature that does. The headnote to that poem, if you remember, was that line taken from um, Seneca's work on Hercules, when Hercules wakes up from his dream and discovers he killed his children and his wife. So you've got an antithesis, two very different moments of coming out of a, a sleep, a dream state, and seeing the reality before you. For Pericles, it was this overwhelming joy. For Hercules, it was this dark tragedy. So the, the father in the poem is in this between world. He's experienced this joy, and he's seen something familiar now with that joy a part of him. And I suggested that it's a little bit like a conversion when we're changing. We, we're, we're, we're still in the presence of everything that's familiar to us, but we're aware that there's something more there. So this combination of something familiar and strange can be frightening, unsettling. Um, because so often we, we want to have control over things. We want things to be comfortable where we know, when we know that God is calling us to something more. So one of the questions behind both of these poems is how well do we live in mystery? Do we make a place for mystery in life that we should? Um, so Simeon falls into that same category. We get a little bit of this in murder, but, um, but in these two lyrics, that's what's going on. Remember, S Simeon, um, the Holy Ghost visited him and, and let him know um, what was happening. He goes to the um, temple when Christ is being presented and he, um, he, he I'll read the lines. Um, he, um, the Holy Ghost is with him. Um, um, then he took him up in his arms. This is Simeon taking Christ up in his arm, blessed God, and said, Lord, now let us, thou servant, depart in peace. According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Um, he's Jewish. He's, he's one with all the Jews who have been awaiting their Savior. Lots of them refused to see their Savior because they expected this mighty figure, greater than David, who would take out their enemies. Um, they didn't see that, that salvation was here, but pointing towards another world. So it's another instance of this in-between state. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared, a light to the Gentiles, the glory of the people Israel. Because Christ came out of the Jews, he was a Jew, he was the fulfillment 
of everything the Jews were called out to do. Joseph and his mother, they marvel. Simeon blessed them and says to Mary, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. So good and bad things are going to come from this. Okay. Um, and that's where Simeon is. So Elliot did Marina, and here he's doing Simeon. Song for Simeon. Lord, the Roman hyacinths are blooming in bowls, and the winter sun creeps by the snow hills. The stubborn season is made stand. My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. I mentioned this before. He got this from the French um, poets. That so often he uses a concrete image. He doesn't make statements about it. He just makes a statement and leaves it there. But the way he does it makes us aware of something else. It's a very evocative thing. Um, we have to do the work to connect whatever that familiar thing is to something greater. Um, my life is light waiting for the death wind like a feather on the back of my hand. Dust in sunlight and memory in corners wait for the wind that chills towards the dead land. Grant us thy peace. I have walked many years in this city, kept faith and fast, provided for the poor, have taken and given honor and ease. There went never any rejected from my door, who shall remember my house, where shall live my children's children when the time of sorrow is come. They will take to the goat's path and the fox's home, fleeing from the foreign faces and the foreign swords. We know that Jerusalem was taken into captivity. Before the time of cords and scourge and lamentation, grant us thy peace. Before the stations of the mountain of desolation, before the certain hour of material sorrow, now at this birth season of decease, what a paradox, this birth season of decease, let the infant, the still unspeaking and unspoken word, grant Israel's consolation to one who has eighty years and no tomorrow. According to thy word, they shall praise thee and suffer in every generation with glory and derision. Light upon light, mounting the saint's stair, not for me the martyrdom, the ecstasy of thought and prayer, not for me the ultimate vision. Grant me thy peace. And a sword shall pierce thy heart, thine also. I am tired with my own life and the lives of those after me. I am dying in my own death and the deaths of those after me. Let thy servant depart, having seen thy salvation. It's a wonderful image. I, I, I'm assuming that it will speak more to us because um, all of us are approaching that age. I mean, we're getting, most of us, um, we're approaching that age um, where we feel our age and the weight of it and um, aware that we will be leaving it soon. So. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry. This Sunday's readings will be on the presentation. Is that right? And it is the gospel is about sending. Yeah. Yes. Good. So we'll have to point Good. that in our mind. Good. Good. Thanks for saying that. Okay. Um. 
quickly, just a quick review. Um, remember that murder has two sections, two parts. Both of them take place in the bishop's palace. In the second, um, um, the, the second part is divided into two. It ends in the cathedral, which is appropriate. I've suggested that there may be slight parallels with the mass. Um, everything that happens in the first part prepares for the homily. Um, Thomas gives the homily, and then um, the homily is followed by a sacrifice. And we know from what we've done, what happens with Thomas um, links him to Christ. Because what happens to him is exactly what happens to Christ. So the two are connected. Um, he's martyred. He's killed. Um, unjustly, too. <coughs> um, the major themes, um, the, the play in one sense is, I think, meant to speak to everybody. All classes of English society, all classes of any world. It's made up of the chorus, um, which represents the common man, all of us, the priest class, the tempters, and the knights, um, who, um, um, who owe their duty, their lives, to their king. So in one sense, in a very simple, stark way, he's showing the whole culture. It seems to me, one of, not seems to me, it, it's one of the things that Eliot's doing we have to be clear on. I've suggested the image of the palimpsest. Remember, a palimpsest is a sheet that you um, wipe away, clean off what's there, the text that's on it, in order to write another one. So a palimpsest is an image of a layered reality. And Eliot is constantly making allusions to other, other books. The, the curse on the House of Atreus, I've mentioned that. I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, there's that passage where um, he's told, save yourself, save yourself. And to me, it's an echo of the soldier saying to Christ, save yourself. Um, that scorn you know, directed at Christ. There's a passage in which the, I think it's the chorus says, or, and Thomas says, I've been approaching this all my life. Everything has been leading me to this point, to die. That's an echo straight out of Hamlet, because if you remember Hamlet, when Hamlet returns and he's in the graveyard, he's looking at Yorick, who was the, the um, court jester when he was a kid. Yorick used to put him on his shoulders and play with him. It's, it's a reminder that death is always with us. It's something we want generally, I think, in our culture, certainly, we want to do everything to put it aside, to not deal with death. The church is the only body that says... Memento mori, memento mori, remember death. We're supposed to carry it as a help. The, the world wants to do away with it. Um, so there are these levels of meaning, um, these allusions to other works that are so important to what Eliot's doing. Um, and another one, actually, that I thought about when I was reading it, when, the, when one of the knights is describing... Um, Thomas, he's describing him in terms of rebelling against his king. And I immediately thought of um, Achilles in the Iliad turning from Agamemnon and all that that set in motion. We're doing the Iliad right now at, at, um, at um, <coughs> Seton, so it's been very much on my mind. But um, So there are all these allusions to the works, um, other works. It seems to me all of them are come to a point in the passages that we 
ended up on last time. I just want to go back to them briefly. Because <coughs> to me they're central. On page 40 again, let's just go back. And then we'll come forward. Page 40. Um, Thomas is dealing with one of the tempters, and the tempter says, you know and do not know. Um, he's talking about the difference between the agent and the patient. Remember, both are fixed in an eternal action, an eternal patience, to which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it, that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn, and still be forever still. That's straight out of Boethius. Remember the distinction he makes between fate, um, a word to describe the way in which um, everybody caught up in the life is largely determined by what they do. I hope that's clear. When we're in a world and we're trying to be as successful as we can or to get as much, remember the four goods, wealth, power, honor, pleasure. That's from Bowie and Thomas too. Those are all good. They're good goods. They're natural goods. But when they preoccupy us, they determine us. We get locked into them. So whenever our life, be, whenever we get so caught up with those things that everything we're doing, even when we're trying to be successful or have a good image or enjoy pleasure, whatever it is, our lives get determined. We're like we're robotic. We're, we're like automatons. We we our lives get defined by the world. We don't step back to get free of it. The call of the church is to come out of that to be free. There's no way to be free according to our faith without a cross because we have to die to ourselves. <clears throat> we, won't, we won't have the self-mastery that the church calls us to until we get free of them, until we're free. So that the choices that we make are not governed by what the world determines, it's by choices, particularly with Christ, because he represents a world that's free of these things. Remember when we did Dante, um, Dante's, yeah, in the Purgatorio, remember at the beginning of the Purgatorio, the ship comes with the souls from Egypt. Because to Dante and to the Christian world, this world as we know it is Egypt. We're slaves. Everything we do is for wealth, power, pleasure, image. We, we have to learn to get free of those if we're to be completely free. That's what Christ offered. Because if we don't, we're slaves to those things. So fate is that area in which we're determined. It's fated. To step out of it is to move towards that center point, providence, where God wills. That was Boethius' argument. Remember Lady Philosophy's argument. Only as you approach that still point do, um, do you get free of those things and enter into a freedom that's genuine, that's, that's a rest. The still point is the point of joy where we rest. St. Augustine's, how do you put it? Um, my life is restless until I rest in thee. Um, it's only when we know the joy of being with that which we long for, God, that we'll finally rest. We'll get out of that circle and be still. So um, Thomas has struggled with all these temptations, um, tried to answer them. And um, here he's, he's speaking about the temptation he's facing in terms of that Boethian image. Um, 
Um, on page 43, the chorus is responding again that they're living and partly living, but then they say, God gave us always some reason, some hope, but now a new terror has soiled us, which none can avert, none can avoid, flowing under our feet and over the sky. God is leaving us. God is, this is the next page, 44. He's leaving us more pain, more pain than birth or death. What they're facing involves a horror greater than any they've known. For laughter, laughter, laughter like the hyena, the lords of hell are here. They curl around you, lie at your feet, swing and wing through the dark air. O Thomas, save us, save us, um, that we may be saved. Destroy yourself and we are destroyed. It's at this point, after Thomas has faced his intentions, that he says, now the way is clear, now the meaning is clear. Um, the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. It seems to me it's true for all of us. Um, on the next page, in the middle, he says, um, He added the king's dish to become servant of God was never my wish. Servant of God has chance of greater sin. He's an archbishop. If he sins, his sin, his sin will be graver. Um, servant of God has a greater chance of greater sin and sorrow than the man who serves a king. For those who serve the greater cause may make the cause serve them. Okay. That is doing the seeming to do the right thing for the wrong reason. They're really doing something for themselves. So the issues he's been facing here along is can he get rid of himself, get his pride out of the way, so that he's serving God. He has to give his will up to God. And we've learned from what he says, or what Thomas is, or you know, the Archbishop is about to say, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, those are some of the major themes. Um, and remember that. Um, the, it, it pointed towards the beginning. I want to go back to the homily in a second. But it was all pointing to this strange re recurring phrase in the second part of the very beginning. <clears throat> Remember the chorus is talking about the cyclical nature of seasons and then says, what have we done wrong? What have we done wrong? Um, what can we do? Um, we wait and the time is short. This is on 54. But waiting is long. And then... A ceremonial sequence of events begins because the first priest, priest comes in with the banner of St. Stephen and he says these words, since Christmas a day, and the day of St. Stephen, and we get the voice of Stephen and maybe even Christ. The second priest comes in with the banner and it says on 55, since St. Stephen a day and the day of St. John the Apostle, and then we get a line from John in the congregation, he opened his mouth. The third priest comes in, since St. John the Apostle, a day and the day of the Holy Innocents. And then we get um, another um, quote. Um, this has to do with Herod's killing of the innocents, the babes. The priests say on 56, rejoice we all keeping a holy day. Um, the first priest, as for the people, also for himself, he offereth for sins. He lays down his life for the sheep. The three priests, rejoice we all keeping the day. First priest, today. Second priest, today. What is today? For the day is half gone. First priest, today. What is today? But another day, the dusk of the year. Second priest, today. What is today? Another night, another dawn. The third priest, it seems to me, goes a little bit farther. He says, what is the day that we know that we hope for or fear for? Every day is the day we should fear from or hope from. One moment weighs like another. 
only in retrospection, selection, we say that was the day, the critical moment. That is always now and here, even now in sorted particulars, the eternal design may appear. That is, that still point may appear out of this confusion or mess or sorted details. I think that's where we started or ended last time. I just want to take a minute. What is, why this emphasis on the day? It's, it's, it, he's not explaining anything. He just says, since Christmas, since Christmas, a day. Since St. Stephen, a day. Since St. John the Apostle, a day. And then the priests are going, what's today? What's today? I think we talked about that, didn't we? What, what's this? Why this strange way of presenting um, this? Because he says nothing about it. He just says the day. And you remember, I've suggested... It's really interesting to look at Eliot's style because there's nothing in it that's colloquial or very little. It's very formal, and I would say oracular. It has a very formal oracular character through the whole thing. You feel like you're in the presence of something liturgical. What's the focus? Why this focus on the day? I think just to, I thought we, but I want to be sure we deal with this before we go on. Well, then the focus would be on Christ's birth. And one day after that, rather than saying December 26, that would be St. Stephen. And a day after is John the Apostle, the 27th. So it seems to me that keeping centered on the most important day. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, so and do I. The day, and the day. It's different. Like but it. it does sound so liturgical. And it was like, it's the whole thing about time, chronicle time and eternal time. And what? Uh, Kairos, eternal, eternal time. Eternal yeah. Now, yes. Still point. Yeah. With the horizontal time. Yeah. The flow of time. Yeah. And if any, anybody should know about that, is the person who practices the ritual. The priests don't know that. That's what's amazing. It's yeah. Like they're blind to their own the meaning of their own ritual. Yeah. Of the liturgical emphasis of putting us in the same mindset. Yeah. Yep. 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 I think it's um, Stephen was martyred. Um, the the I'll go back to the homily in a second because I think he makes it clear that Stephen is martyred. The holy innocents were martyred. They were killed, butchered. Um, I, I my sense of the day. I mean, I'm just repeating what the two of you have already said. But the the question we should be asking that the priests are asking with no sense that they don't know something they should know. The question is whether we're not whether we're participating in the day in the sacrament of Christ giving up His life because that's what each day is for, in some measure, some degree, whatever it is. It can be it can be a quarrel in a family, you know. It can be a struggle in a family. It can be a decision over a banknote. Who knows? You know, it can be disciplining a kid. It can be whatever it is. Do we approach those moments aligning ourselves with Christ? on a cross, putting ourselves away so that we can bring him to what we do. A day, a day, a day, a day. Because as Tom just expressed it, the question is, are we centered on that day in whatever day we do? In that sense, all days, remember, all days go back. That eternal, I talked about this, I think, last time, that eternal pattern, we just thought where the still point is still still. If there's an eternal pattern at all, I remember, I think I asked this question. What's the one thing none of us can escape in this world? It's death. We're going to die. All of us are going to die. 
The question is, are we living our lives with some sense that we're connected with that pattern? That pattern in heaven, we believe, is true for every single person, whether he's Jewish or Islam, doesn't matter. They may not believe it, and so not live it, but we've been asked to live it. That pattern is a God came down, took on our nature, took it to a cross to answer a divine injustice, to bring a justice to that, to, to bring a sad, to satisfy that crime, to give satisfaction for that crime. He answered an injustice, a divine injustice, as only he could because it needed God and a human, um, and did it with love, by absolutely denying himself, giving himself up. Do we participate in that each day of our lives? The day, the day, the day, the day. I think that's why it's so haunting. Stephen, the day. I love that. It's just, I mean, I thought Linda, I feel the same way. It's hard to read it. It's oracular. There's no statement about it. He leaves it there to, to either mean or it doesn't. He, he's not moralizing. He's not pointing a finger. He just makes a word. And we meditate on it, enter into it, or we miss it. The day, the day. It's really lovely. Sort of haunting. Um, okay. I want to just briefly recall the homily, and then I'd like to look to the end um, to see what he's doing. Remember in the homily on Christmas Day, Beckett says, a Mass is performed every day of our lives. If we go to Mass, we go to a Mass and um, enter into a sorrow. A joy too, but a sorrow largely because our, uh, we participate in the sacrifice of Christ. I've asked this question forever, you guys. When we take the Eucharist into us, where are we? You know, we go out to the parking lot, and do we carry Christ in us? If we do carry Christ in us, are we aware that we're in his kingdom? Do we actually imagine it? I've said to my kids for the longest time, if, if I'm, I'm going to keep saying it to them, when you say a prayer, imagine. If you're saying a prayer to Mary, imagine Mary. So she's there. And I, um, you know that part of our family's in a covenant school right now because of what's happened there. But, and you always hear them go, we pray, O oh Lord. And then I keep saying to the kids, if somebody was in your presence, would you say we pray? <laughs> You'd say, Lord. Yeah, I want our kids to imagine Mary. I want our kids to imagine Christ, to pray. He's there. Say, Lord. Say, Christ. Say, Mary. Um, Thomas is saying, we go to, when we go to Mass every day, we participate in the crucifix um, with a sorrow. We carry that with us. On Christmas Day, we celebrate the birth of Christ. So on Christmas Day, two things are happening. We're celebrating Christ's death, which we should feel with an infinite, infinite sorrow, infinite, to the ends of our being. And we celebrate his birth, and we should take delight, a joy in his birth, an infinite boundless joy, and we're asked to pull those two things together. Um, that's the nature of our faith, not one or the other, not a black or white, both. And he says, he reminds us after making that point, that we're called to participate in both, that Christ gave us this peace, but it's not the peace the world knows. The peace the world knows is material pleasures, material security, thinking you've got everything right so you can rest and always aware, even, even when we get our material rest that um, we've got all things the way we want, we can't rest. There's something in us still longing for more. 
Augustine's, um, my heart is restless and cannot rest in thee. There is this infinite desire that we have because God made us for himself. So the peace that he offers isn't the peace of the world. It's, it's something of another order. And from that homily, he goes into that opening on the day. Okay, uh, The days, Stephen the day, Christmas the day, um, the innocence the day. I want to just look briefly at some of the exchanges in the second half. Um, um, <coughs> the knights come in. They're rude. The priests invite them to dinner, but they say um, business before dinner. They want to get on. Um, um, on 59, they confront Thomas, who um, comes on stage at that point. And the knights say, and it's interesting, um, Suzanne made this comment once, I think last week when we were leaving, but this is one of those instances where, the, where like the three tempters, the three knights speak as one. That had to reinforce a sense of the oracular, because they're all one voice. They're not three separate men. It's formal in an eerie way. That is, they're of one spirit, one mind, in what they're about to do. You are the archbishop in revolt against the king and rebellion to the king and the law of the land. You are the archbishop who was made by the king, whom he set in your place to carry out his command. You are his servant, his tool, his jack. You wore his favors on your back. You had your honors all from his hand, from him you had the power, the seal, the ring. This is implicitly Agamemnon and Achilles. All the honor, all the booty you have is from your king, you owe him. Shut up and go back into the war. Achilles withdraws and goes out. That's the very beginning of our literature. This is a different form. This is Christian. But this is the man who was the tradesman's son, the black, the back stairs brat who was born in Sheepside. Um, this is the creature that crawled upon the king, swollen with blood and swollen with pride, creeping out of London dirt. The man who cheated, swindled, lied, broke his oath, betrayed his king. Um, why do they look at him that way? Can, this is simple, I think, but I don't want to assume anything. Why did he? Why did they look at him that way? Describe him that way. Is it like telling you where, where did you come from? Remember your roots. And the roots are temporal. That's the problem. He's the king, and the assumption is you owe your life to the king. For them, there is no higher order. It's easier for them to kill him. Yeah. So anything he did. Um, in the name of that higher order would make him a scoundrel in terms of their order. Because for them, the king is everything. If any of you have seen that movie, um, Chariots of Fire? Have you all seen it? You should. That's an extraordinary... If you haven't seen that movie, you should see it because it's a great... This great Presbyterian Scottish runner Mm. learns when he's accepted into the Olympics that his his event is going to be held on the Sabbath. He's a fundamental, there's no way he's going to run it because he knows he gets his strength from God. So he declines. So there's this meeting with all the, the prince and the head of state and, and they gently try to persuade him to go against his religious vows, his commitment, when to, in his mind that's the source of what makes him a great runner. And he won't do it and he said, they said something like, to king country first. I mean, so British, king country. And it's it said sort of with a resounding authority, as, as if for anybody to, to do otherwise would make him a traitor. 
It's exactly what's going on here with these men. Um, Thomas says, not true. Um, I've been a loyal subject to the king, saving my order. I'm at his command, at his most faithful vassal in the land. Saving your order? Let your order save you. That's an echo of the soldier saying, Christ, if you're king, save yourself. Get down from the cross. Um, When there's a discussion to um, whom people owe their loyalties, um, Thomas says, who? The first knight says to the king, second, the king, third, the king. On 861, the three knights say together, God bless the king. Um, So they're about ready to kill him and start to attack him, and the priests intervene. um, And then the knights present their charges on 62. Um, of your earlier misdeeds, he says, we don't have to go over them, but here are um, the charges. You had fled from England, not exiled or threatened, mind you, but in the hope of stirring up trouble in the French. I mean, God, this reminds me of what's going on in the impeachment, where people start um, framing um, accusations to justify a way they already look at things. So they're saying, the purpose you, the reason you went to France is to stir up trouble. It had nothing else to do with other things. He wasn't fleeing persecution. It was to stir up trouble. You sowed strife abroad. You reviled the king to the king of France, the king of France and the king of England and been at odds anyway, to the Pope. So all he was doing, his motive in going was to make problems. Second night, yet the king out of his charity offered clemency, made a peace pact, Third night, um, burying the memory of your transgression, restored your honors, that the king did all these things for you. Look how good he is. First night again. The third charge, suspending those who'd crowned the young prince, denying the legality of his coronation. I don't know if you're aware of this, but then the, um, the bishop of uh, Canterbury was the bishop that crowned the king. That had been a longstanding tradition. Um, it involved both the king and the pope. Um, in this instance, to break off from, to, to ex- as a way of expressing his independence, Henry chose the bishops of York and some other major city, I can't remember what it was, to do the crowning, and it couldn't be approved. And when the bishops supported the king, um, Becket excommunicated, the pope did. Because there's that rivalry, again, where the, the state is attempting to use the church to gain power over the clergy, and the church was resisting. We saw the same thing with Thomas More when we did Thomas More in the Reformation work and with Milton. And, um, suspending those who had crowned the young prince, denying the, leg- the legality of his coronation, um, binding with change of anathema, third night, using every means in your power to evince the king's faithful servants, everyone who transacts his business in his absence, the business of the nation. Those are the facts, the bottom of 63. Thomas replies to it all, never was it my wish to uncrown the king's son or to diminish his honor and power. Why should he wish to deprive my people of me and keep me from my own and bid me sit at Canterbury alone? Um, the king acts like he's innocent when what he was doing often undermined um, what was going on. I would wish him three crowns rather than one. And as for the bishops, it's not my yoke that's laid upon them or mine to revoke. Let them go to the Pope. It was he who condemned them. Um, On page 65, 
the um, first knight makes an appeal to the king's justice again. Thomas says, it is not I who insult the king. There is a higher than I um, or the king. It's not I, Becket, from Cheapside. It's not against me, Becket, that you strive. It's not Becket who pronounces doom, but the law of Christ's church, the judgment of Rome. So for those of you who've been around for a while, you know that this is the same thing we saw with Thomas More. It's the same struggle we saw during the Reformation, um, um, what produced Milton, that there has been this struggle um, between state and church from the very beginning, the separate claims. <clears throat> I made the claim when we came out of Dante that one of the great accomplishments of the, of the medieval church was to sort itself out, to, to gradually differentiate itself from the state. But what happened in the Reformation collapsed it again. Um, you remember the wars where the Presbyterians got into power because, and they wanted to f um, force the, um, the Anglicans to their form of worship. And the Anglicans, when they got in power, wanted to force the Presbyterians. I mean, it was just people couldn't separate church from state then. And Henry declared himself um, the head of the sovereign head, able, able to determine matters of um, doctrine. America, this is so, it, I'm going to come to this in the introduction, I mean, to Dostoevsky, <laughs> ask me how we get there. I want to come to this when we do this next week on um, Russia. One of the fundamental things going on in our constitution is we were a colony of England. We were subordinate to them. When we broke, we defined ourselves as an independent nation, and one of the defining powers, characteristics of us as a nation was disestablishment of church. That we cannot force somebody to follow a state religion. The people should be free to pursue their faith on their own. That emerged from that battle. That's one of the defining characteristics of us as a country. It's what sets us apart. And in that sense, we distinguish ourselves from Europe as a nation. So amazing things happened at that moment. But I'm only saying that to try to put this in. A, it's the same battle we've been watching from the very beginning. Um, Augustine was facing it. Boethius was facing it. Boethius was facing it in the seventh, 6th century, 7th century. Um, because the battles between church and state were going on there. They were really partly behind the decision to execute him, the accusations uh, put against him. Um, the, the chorus laments the death that is everywhere again. It's feeling that this, there's something sinister present on 68. They've acknowledged that death is everywhere, the horrors of the ape. Um, have I known and not known what was coming to be? It was here in the kitchen, the passage. It was everywhere. As well as in the consultation of powers, what is woven in the loom of fate, what is woven in the councils of princes, woven in our veins, our brains, is woven in the pattern of living worms in the guts of the women of Canterbury. It's in them, the chorus. I have smelt them. Nothing is possible but the shame swoon. This, this is beautiful because it's about to happen and they know it. I've smelt them, the death bringers, now is too late for action, too soon for contrition. The event hasn't happened. Nothing is possible but the shame swoon of those consenting to the last humiliation. I have consented. Lord Archbishop, have consented. Am torn away, subdued, violated, united to the spiritual flesh of nature, mastered by the animal powers of spirit, dominated by the lust of self-demolition, 
by the final utter uttermost death of spirit, by the final ecstasy of waste and shame, O Lord Archbishop, O Thomas Archbishop, forgive us. Forgive us, pray for us, that we may pray for you. That is, they're bound by their flesh. This is Thomas's image, or Paul's image of the flesh, united to the spiritual flesh of nature. They're so mastered by the, by the earthly things, by their ties to the earthly thing, that they can't tear themselves away. Who's saying this right now? The chorus. Oh, the chorus is saying, okay. It starts on the bottom of 66. 66, It just goes over these um, intimations, these hints of death everywhere. But, but the form of death now that they're talking about is different. This is sinister. Remember the, what was that term they used? The, the holy, the, the, the lords of hell. The lords of hell are here. Here was one of the things I, sorry, I meant to, going back to the, the um, homily that I meant, I wanted to pick out and forgot to just now. Go back just for um, an, a second. Thomas is talking about the martyr and, and combining Christ's birth with his death. And he turns to the martyr. He says in 49, Beloved, we do not think of a martyr simply as a good Christian who's been killed because he's a Christian, for that would be solely to mourn. We do not think of him simply <clears throat> as a good Christian who's been elevated to the company of the saints, <clears throat> for that would be sim- simply to rejoice. Neither our mourning nor our rejoicing is as the world's is. We've been asked to bring them together. Day, 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 the day. Stephen, the day. Um, and neither our mourning nor our, our rejoicing is as the world's. A Christian martyrdom is never an accident. For saints are not made by accident, still less is a Christian martyrdom the effect of a man's will to become a saint. Because if he did, the question arises, is he doing it in his own pride for himself? Or his own reward? Look at me, God, how good I am. Like you can buy off heaven. Um, Still less is a Christian martyrdom the effect of a man's will to become a saint. As a man by willing and contriving may become a ruler of men, a martyrdom is always the design of God for his love of men. So it's really clear in a way that was, we, we can see clearly if we look at Christ choosing the disciples. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He chose them. Christ chooses, this is God's will. To, to take the opposite position is, it, it's, it's, to me, it's a violation of God, the second commandment. Don't speak his name in vain. We're not God. We, we cannot speak for him. He's the one who chooses. So none of this can be accidental, and it can't be determined by a man. I think that's why the forces threatening here are so sinister. This is God's will. So the kind of death that the Chorus have been talking about is getting worse and worse and worse because we're seeing that what they're dealing with is the lords of hell that this is a kind of sinister evil. They're opposing God's will directly. It involves a martyrdom. It would be like Peter saying to Christ, you're not going to go there. Or God forbid, when Christ says, remember he's just been given the keys, and he says, the, the man of, um, what do you say? The man, what are the words? that? Yeah, but it's the, the man of man, the um, messy that, huh? The son of man will have to suffer. And Peter says, no. Christ says, get behind me, Satan. That's God's will 
Peter's playing with because Peter's reference is he doesn't want his friend, his Lord, to suffer. Remember, it's the same thing in the Iliad. For those of you who remember, when Achilles has he's accepted his death and he's bribed out of it and he turns on Prime, it's the it, in that whole last episode where Prime and Achilles come together in this extraordinary tenderness. Prime starts to tempt him away and give him all those gifts, and and Achilles gets furious because he's already accepted his death. He's got to go to it. He knows that. So what we're dealing with here is a is a death of a different order. It's not like ordinary dying. This is a martyrdom. This is an instance in which a man is being called out by God to more directly, immediately participate in Christ's death itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go back to, and I don't have my book this morning, sorry. Um, go back to the um, beginning where... Um, Do you want it, Doc? Beckett says that you have to consent that it may be willed. Yeah. Um, and in the chorus um, that you just read... The chorus that I just read. The, the long chorus thing that you just yeah. read starting in 66. Yeah. yeah. Um, at the end it says... Um, we have consented, you have consented. Is that an echo of that? I mean, does it go back to that? Here, let me consent? read, so, because, just so <coughs> I'm sure, this is where they say neither agent or patient act, both are fixed, both are, both are fixed in eternal action. An eternal patience, is this the one you're talking about? Mm-hmm. To which all must consent that it may be willed, and which all must suffer that they may will it that the pattern may subsist, that the wheel may turn and still be forever still. And you're saying here, I have smelt them, the death bringers, now is too late for action, too soon for contrition, too soon for contrition. Nothing is possible but the shame swoon of those consenting to the last humiliation. I have consented, Lord Archbishop, have consented. Am torn away, subdued, violated. Go ahead. Your question? Consent is, it's the only place I know that it's in the play, is that first one and then this Mm -hmm. one. Are they related in any way? Is he talking about the same kind of, the chorus is now consenting, as Thomas was saying, had to be done? Is that? How would you answer it? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Anybody? I think they. Now relate, I mean, tie it to their use of consent here and that earlier statement where um, where Thomas... consenting to that concept. Sorry? I think you're consenting to that concept. What concept? What before where they were saying, you know, Thomas, Archbishop, don't, don't go. You know, they're now saying we consent, we understand. You know, this, you know, this, this is the will... You know, pray for us, and, and we can pray for you. Yeah. That we know that this this has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the eternal plan. 
Yeah, and I'd, I'd see, it seems to me that, well, here, let me put, see if I can phrase this. I think it. it's a realization at this point mm -hmm. that, you know, they understand that this is, this is something that must be done. Yeah. My sense of that earlier passage is that the sense of some, to which all must consent that it may be willed. I, I, one of the questions I asked earlier was that an expression of, was that a, an implicit denial of free will that things were fated and they had to be. Um, and I tried to answer that by saying that um, what's asked of any person is whether they consent to what God wills so that it can be willed. It's asking, it's asking for a free giving of one's will to do it so that the pattern may subsist, that, um, that they may enter into the suffering with Christ so that it may be willed. They'll be one with God. There's a sense in my mind, I'm not sure, Doc, I mean, to me it's a really good question. There's a sense in my mind that, that this is something all have to consent to. Here, it's might, I mean, it's interesting to hear your response here to all of you, but here the, the, um, the, the chorus is different from Thomas. Thomas has had to go to a level of self-denial that's exceptional because it's going to ask him to completely give up his will to God. The chorus we know has been vacillating back and forth, go back to France, stay here, we need you. Here it's um, these meditations on death um, that, that lead them to ask for forgiveness in the prayers from Thomas because he's going to go on to a martyrdom. But in those particular lines, I've smelt them, the death bringers, now it's too late for action, too soon for contrition. They're, they're in a waiting mode. It's going to happen. They know it. Nothing is possible but the shame swoon of those consenting to the last humiliation. I have consented, consented, I'm torn away, subdued by My sense here is the consent here is a little bit different from earlier. See what you guys think of this. Because they're doing, I think, what Fred's saying, that they're finally consenting that it has to be, it is willed. But there's also a sense for me that they're partly ashamed, that they've given in to something, that they've consented that this be, um, because remember, there's the, the um, torn away, subdued, violated, united to the spiritual flesh of nature, mastered by the animal powers of spirit, dominated by the lust of self-demolition, by the final utter. So something of them has been of them as common people. The, the chorus has been so bound by the bound by the flesh in a way that Thomas is not, because Thomas has had to give to utterly give himself up. So to, for me, there's a, there's a little bit of ambiguity. There's a, um, a, the two things are combined. They've accepted it, but they're also partly ashamed because um, they've consented to something bad that's going to happen, and it leads them to um, ask that they be forgiven for prayer. What's your response, Doc? I, um, I think you're right that they are ashamed. Oh. I don't think that, um, that that's necessarily different from what Thomas is saying. That what he said in the beginning could be that you have to consent to doing... Not being a martyr. Not Well, to not being, for them not being a martyr, yeah. but you have to consent to participating by um, giving up, um, by accepting the death. Um, that 
that that consent, they, when he originally said it, it sounded like <coughs> consenting to something great. Um, and now they're saying, this is not great, this is awful. This is death and worms and, and all the bad things. Um, but Thomas sees it as something great. They have to consent to it, and they have consented, even though they're ashamed that what's going to happen is going to happen through the Yeah. Wait one second, if I can. Just one. The, It's interesting. There's, there's a way, as in, at least as I read, that they're a little bit implicated when the, um, in a way that Thomas isn't. And remember that Thomas has to scold the priests when he says, stop, and say to them, and I think to the poor, be at peace. They're not after me. He's asking them to accept it, they to are. make a place for it, to be at they peace are. with. Not after you, they're after me. Yeah, right. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I've interpreted that totally differently. I mean, to me, when it says, you know, pray for you out of our shame, to me, the shame is a reflection of the fact that they now realize they were wrong yeah. in, 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 in asking him not to accept his faith, to not accept the will of God. And that they're now ashamed that they've done that. And, you know, it seems to me like that's kind of supported by what Thomas says next when he says, peace and be at peace with your thoughts and visions. Yeah. And these things had to come to you and you to accept them. So, anyway, I just, and this is your share of the eternal burden. To me, the course actually gets there before the priest do. <coughs> because if you look at the mm -hmm. next line of the priest, they're still, you know, run, come to the altar, they're coming. Right. And then Thomas, in his next, that, the next piece he has there at the bottom of page 69, kind of pulls it all together. And he's kind of telling the priests, you know, you, you guys need to line up with the chorus. Yeah, I'm not sure how that's different from mine, but I'm not. Because he says, all but, my life they have been coming, these feet. Yeah. All my life I have waited. Death will come only when I am worthy. And I am, and if I am worthy, there is no. Difference. Yeah, and hold on. Before wait one second, David, just because I was going to come to those lines, but now that you're there, on seventy he goes, um, "Be quiet, be quiet. Remember where you are and what's happening. No life here is sought for but mine, and I'm not in danger. Only near death. That I mean, that's wonderful. So long as his will is where it should be, and it's with God, there's no danger for him." Death doesn't line, pose a danger. He says that in that last line on 69, yep. I am therefore only to make perfect my life. Well, yep. I'm sort of on a different path. Go ahead. What I want to take away from the No, no, go is, It seems like the word martyr was used, was it used in those days like just a, just a common way of calling somebody's death if they were called to death? Because I always thought, that we, after the person had died, would, just, would call them a martyr for what they did. But he's calling himself a martyr. And I, I, I just, you know, it's maybe the way it was in those times, but I never thought that you could designate yourself as being a martyr. And I guess I'd say, like, if, for example, if I, I said today I'm going to stand up against some, you know, political group or something and they kill me because, let's just say I said, we have to have prayer in the schools and God and everything, and they killed me. So I'm going to say I'm at peace with that because I'm a martyr. 
I just don't know. It's just sort of weird to hear somebody characterize their death as being a martyr. Yeah. Does anybody want to respond? Well, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure what to say. I, I mean, historically, I, I'm not a what's the you know a student of languages, whatever. I'm, the word I'm missing here, linguist, but. Um, I mean, I would have thought the word would have been around from the beginning of time, maybe even preceding Christianity just because of its origins. But um, it's hard for me, David, to imagine um, any of the possibles or, or any of the martyrs, the saints who were martyred, going to their death without understanding, whether they ever used the word or not, without understanding they were with Christ. I, I get that. <clears throat> Here we're just giving, you know, we're being, it's a drama and, it, and it's being used explicitly. If, if uh, I would imagine, like Stephen saying, forgive them, they don't know what they do, you know, that he knows at that moment he's being martyred. Um, he doesn't say it because his focus isn't on him. Thomas is trying to hold off priests and, of course, we're, you know, trying to stop this from happening. Um, so it's being made explicit. It's hard for me to, I, this is, you know, we're in a world of imagination and speculation, right? I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine um, a martyr going to his death in a real, because not all, not all deaths are martyrdoms. And lots, lots of people may die thinking they're martyrs when they're not. I mean, I, I think the church has a tough decision whenever it makes that distinction, because they make it on the basis of certain things, you know, whether, whether the guy really, there was a long, a long period of debate about, whether Thomas More was a saint or not, you know, for good reasons. It's just, um, you, not all deaths um, are martyrdoms. They're not, you know, lots of people who think they're being martyred may not be. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. How do you yourself determine that? Now, Linda goes, well, he was. Well, that's because we're looking back in retrospect. Yeah. But I'm just saying at the time, yeah. there are deaths when people died on noble clauses, and I don't know that they're martyrs. Yeah. Remember, too, this is such a broad, I mean, that's a very abstract we're dealing with. Remember, too, in Dante's um, Paradiso, <coughs> when we did the uh, theologians and the soldiers, and the soldiers were closer to martyrdom because they gave up their lives in what they were fighting for. And lots of those people were just soldiers on a battlefield. You know, they were higher than St. Thomas. Tom, or Dante's recognizing that that when a person truly gives up his life, he's closer to a martyrdom than somebody, a, a saint who doesn't. St. Thomas was a saint. Um, all I can say here is that Eliot's presenting a play in, in which he has to try to show a person who's, who was martyred and present him in, in a faithful enough way so that we can enter into that experience with him. Okay. And I think... Um, that, um, that, that there's no way, I, I believe, that Thomas could have returned, all the evidence suggests this, there's no way he could have returned without wondering whether he wouldn't be martyred, which presented him with a struggle, because if that thought came to his mind, he would have to wrestle with these demons. Am I, am I really doing, is this God's will for me? Am I doing it for myself to be a martyr so people will look at me? Am I doing, so it's, it's impossible. Eliot's taken a, a, I mean, he's done a really good thing. He's taken an actual historical example. Um, we don't have the record of these conversations. I mean, he's, he's a poet. 
but it seems to me he's truthful in that this sense. Thomas comes back knowing or that there's a good chance he'll be killed. How can anybody, an archbishop, who's gone against the king already, who takes his principles that seriously, not contemplate those problems, not face those demons? Eliot's doing it. He's shown us the various levels of temptation. So in terms of the play, not reality, because we don't know, but in terms of the play, I think we can say safely that we're being allowed to experience a, a martyr going through his martyrdom because he's faced all these things. Um, we look at it and say, particularly if you set the course and the priest next to him, you know, I mean, the course's first response was go back to France. And gradually the, the, the course enter into suffering different degree, even a spiritual degree here in the passage that we're looking at here. They're talking about a, something sinister and then asking for forgiveness in this whole question that Doc raised, you know, about consenting. Where are, where are, how do people stand with respect to this now? You know, so Eliot's doing everything he can to show a whole community in the way that it relates to a martyr. The martyr himself, the priest, who to me are a little bit scandalous. You know what I mean? They're the, the chorus and... Um, here, let's go. Thank you. That, that, Sorry. I was thinking that, that this thing, it, there's such a high-pitched tension between these two people, I mean, the group, the chorus, that this kind of a, represents the whole collective understanding of that group, of that society at right. that time. Right, right. And this one man who's confronting that, and and they change sides in a way. I mean, they as they get closer to this, they see their own participation in uh, in falsely accusing this man. And now they're guilty. It's like, the, the, as death comes into the picture, you get clearer sight of what's going on. And that is, that's when all of a sudden they realize they're participating in something that's ugly. And there's real there's a realization, I think what you're talking about, Susan, is the, the, the terrible shame that we got caught in this. We thought we know where evil was and it was political. But if you define it that way, it's much more personal. And I think what both of them come to... And incriminating. Yeah, I mean, self-incriminating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, any death is an incrimination of all of us in some way. You always want to wash your hands. Yeah. So that you don't have to talk about it. That's great, yeah. great comment. It's really interesting, but my, my experience, I, I mean, we've gone, we've gone to funerals all of our life. You know, and we, you go to a funeral and you say goodbye to somebody. You're sad. I mean, I generally am. I mean, as I've gotten older, I, I take seriously this thing about being glad. for. I take it really seriously. There was this line in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night where Olivia goes to the queen who's sorry because her brothers died. And she said, Olivia, or the clown, says, um, you should be crying because he went to hell. The queen gets really angry and says, you shouldn't say that. He didn't go to hell. He went to heaven. And the clown says, then you should be happy. <laughs> we should be, I mean, we're, we're called to be happy. So holding on to sorrow and happiness, it, it's hard. But, but I don't ever remember feeling implicated in a, in a death because this is not just a death. It's a martyrdom where a guy's participating in Christ's death and giving up everything. And in that way, I think it, it raises different problems for everybody participating in it. Your people are more implicated because this whole, you know, that, that those passages about being bound to the spiritual body and 
Um, yes. Yep. Yep. Or or they couldn't have asked for they couldn't have asked for forgiveness unless they right. were aware of something. But for them to say mastered by animal powers, united spiritual flesh, dominated by the lust, by you know, and it's interesting because um, the 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 obscurity of this partly comes because Thomas sees so clearly that he's been called. Um, and Thomas made it clear, you just can't will yourself into this. The whole question is whether you surrender your will to God or not. And so it really does define. It really does. And it, part of the beauty of it is that it leads them to ask for forgiveness, which is a really good thing. You know? The problem with this notion of the will of God, uh, I don't think God wills that uh, these knights go in there and murder uh, Thomas. Thomas. I think it's he permits it. Yes. Not that he wants What's, this to happen. Right. I agree. I agree. So, and lots of people would, today people would... today use you know, that concept right. I think in the wrong way right. a lot of times. No, I think you're so right on, Don. Absolutely. People who who would interpret it that way deliberately and and miss something um, couldn't agree more. Here, let's let's see if we can. Um, Thomas makes um, that statement that he all his life um, they've been coming. <coughs> Death will come only when I'm worthy, and if I'm worthy, there's no danger. I have therefore only to make my perfect my will. I'm not in danger, only near to death. I love that line. If your will is where it should be, death's no danger. How many of us are ready to die? I think that's sometimes what's so frightening. Um, why the course as a body is so real in the way that Elliot has done things. On page 71, <coughs> the priest tried to drag him off again. A deus ere, it's a, the, the day, there it is again, the day, the day, the day of wrath. It's a day, this era, the day of wrath. Numb the hand, dry the eyelids, still the horror, but more horror than when tearing in the belly. Whatever horror, this is why I say the lords of hell, that this, the, the evil that's present, the death that's present is sinister in this play. Still the horror, but more horror. It's, it's worse than whatever you feel when you feel your stomach tearing a ripping in your stomach. Still the horror, but more horror than when twisting in the fingers, than when splitting the skull. You can tear your hands through your skull, you can split it. The horror that we're talking about is worse. More than footfall in the passage, more than shadow in the hall. You know that sometimes hearing a foot or a noise in the hallway or a shadow can sometimes send a shudder. More than fury in the hall. This is what's extraordinary to me um, in what he goes on to describe here, the agents of hell disappear, the human they shrink and dissolve, into dust on the wind, forgotten, unmemorial, only is here the white flat face of death, God's silent servant. Behind the face of death, the judgment, and behind the judgment, the void, more horrid than the active shapes of hell, emptiness, absence, separation from God, the horror of the effortless journey to the empty land, which is no land, only emptiness, absence, the void. Where those who are men can no longer turn the mind to distraction, delusion, escape into dream, pretense. Where the soul is no longer deceived, for there are no objects, no tones, no colors, no forms to distract, to divert the soul 
from seeing itself foully united forever, nothing with nothing, not what we call death, but what beyond death is not death. We fear, we fear. Who shall then plead for us? Who intercede for me in my most need? Um, they're turning to Christ. Any comments on this? Sorry. That is, it's like worse than dying. I mean, I mean, it's so gripping what he just described. It's like going into space. Huh? That's worse than anything Dante. I don't know. Here, here's my question. I go ahead, Dante. Sorry. Is just, to me, this is despair. It's like the realization you're participating in something so evil, and now, and he's describing, you know, he's putting words to something that is so horrible. <laughs> it's the emptiness, and the void that you go into. I mean, going into the void is not pretty experience. I, let me offer this thought and see what you guys, what your response is. When I read this, what immediately jumped out at me is how different it is from Dante. Because you know that in Dante, the people in hell have forms and shapes. They, they lock them in those relationships, whatever it is. It can be lust or greed or whatever, lying. You know, so they're locked. Whatever it was that held them in life, it carries over. That's what they do. It, it's the present moment. Endless. Whatever they've chosen, they've got it. So it's a punishment. They don't even know that they don't know. When I read this, my first thought was, this is worse than it. And then I read it again, I thought... I'm not sure, because if you're if you're separate in the way that because the great teacher of Eliot was Dante. Eliot loved Dante. I mean, he, he just loved him. He, he 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 gave him his mind in some way. That's how close. But in Dante's cell, you know that there are all these figures. Here, Eliot's describing something. I think closer to Buddha, Buddhism or the nothingness, or it's another religion. But here's my question: If there's nothing, then what's there to suffer? I mean, what, what he's done is define separation from God as sep outside being. If God is all being and you're nothing, you're, you're outside of that. In Dante's hell, the, the, the people in hell are still in being, or they wouldn't be there suffering. It's just they're, they're suffering what they've wanted, so it's an eternal punishment. Eliot's describing a condition of a void, a nothingness. And my question is, if, if it is nothing, is it worse, is it worse than Dante's hell? Soul is united, nothing to nothing. So there's some consciousness that you are nothing, and there is nothing. Well, if if you're nothing, what's there to be conscious of? I just, what's, I mean, this is really, it, for me, it sounds frightening. But when I look at it, I'm not sure. Why did you go first to tell us about it? <laughs> no. Thomas, that isn't even funny. God, go away. I can't even believe you said that. Why? If the soul is eternal, and so then as a soul, you're still you know, able to sense what what's going on around you. And then you're in this you're in this void where there's just an absolute eternity of absolutely nothing, but yet for eternity you're going to be aware of that. I can't think of anything worse than that. See what what, what I mean the question you're kind of like a drift in this eternal <coughs> void. You know, never able to have anything around you that you can love or appreciate or see the beauty in. Or even hate. Yeah, anything. I mean, but you're there, you, you, and you're going to be there forever, doing 
Absolutely nothing. nothing. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. Yeah. I mean, I just, and I guess it's a personal thing, but I mean, burn my feet if you want to. <laughs> Don't put me in a void where I, I, I'm going to be forever and, I, and, I, and I'm never going to experience anything. My picture of you suddenly was. Everybody, everybody I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Upside down with your feet burning by here. <laughs> Jay, go on. One of my takes on it was purgatory. It says, we, we fear, we fear. Who shall then plead for me? Who intercede for me in my most need? Pray for the souls in purgatory. How do you know there will be people who come after you who are going to plead your case and pray for you when you're in purgatory? What do you make of this void? What do you do with the void image? How do you... Because <coughs> purgatory is not a void. <coughs> There's a, I mean, here's part of the... Fred, part of the problem that I've got with that, and Suzanne, is nothing with, united nothing with nothing. When you said, you know, if the soul's immortal, yeah, it is. I mean, that's our understanding. But the way he's presented this here makes me wonder whether there's a soul... If you're nothing, if you're nothing... You're not a soul. There's no form. The very nature of the soul itself is form itself. You can engage with other things. The way he's done this is really curious. Really curious to me. Yeah, but look, look at it. Okay, your soul has the ability to engage in something. If you still but have a soul. A, but you're in, but you're in, an, in, an, in an infinity, a void of infinity where there's nothing to engage. So you're sitting here. With the able capability. To, able to engage. Yeah. But there's literally nothing to engage. Why could it be worse than that? See, here's what, no, no, here, I'm not disputing any of that with either. <laughs> what I'm saying is, if there's, no, 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 the question for me that I'm raising is, if you're nothing, you're not a soul, so there's nothing there. Well, I'm not saying you're not anything. That's but that's my I'm question. Saying. No, I know, but. I'm saying you're the eternal soul. You're able to engage. I know. But you're in a surrounding where there's nothing. So I'm just making the distinction. I'm not saying the soul is nothing. I'm saying the, no, the soul is adrift in nothing. I know. I know. My question is whether that's what he means here when he says united with nothing. If there still is a soul, then what you're saying is right. The way that he's set this up makes me wonder whether... Because if, no, if you're outside of being and you're nothing... He doesn't say that. I don't see any where it says he's not a soul. It just it, no, it just says it just, united, united. Capable of engaging is united with nothing. I know. Forever. I know. Yeah. I'm, listen, let's, let me stop. I'm raising a question here. And I want to, whatever anybody does with it, it's just a question. What he means by this when he talks about a void, because it can mean you've got a soul, in which case what you're saying is true. But if what he's saying, if you're united nothing with nothing, and you're in a void, and there is no soul, you are nothing, then all of this other stuff falls apart. It's just curious that he would write it like this. Anyway, just let me just pose the question because it's, it's a scary thing in either way, in either sense, but it, it's interesting because it's very, very different from Dante, who was his master. To, you know, God... God, we all believe God made us. We all have souls. We're eternal. That's why Dante can put us in hell. If, if you're saying you slip out of being, you, you, your separation from God means separation from being. What is that? I mean, what is Elliot doing here? That's a, that's a powerful description. 
Um, the, the men come and they kill him. <clears throat> he gives himself up. Um, on page 73, he says, You think me res- reckless, desperate, mad. You argue, but this is so important. You think me reckless, desperate, and mad. You argue by results as the world does to settle if an act be good or bad. You defer to the fact. Somebody paraphrase that because it's really important. You, the, the priests are critical of him. <clears throat> They're saying, <clears throat> you would bar the door to the boar, the lion, the leopard, the wolf. Why not against beasts with the souls of damn men? Evil spirits are coming after you. You'd close the door in these other things. Why don't you close the door in them? Thomas's answer, you think me reckless, desperate, and mad. You argue by results as this world does to settle if an act be good or bad. You defer to the fact for every life and every act, consequence of good and evil can be shown. And as in time, results of many deeds are blended. So good and evil in the end become confounded. It's not in time that my death shall be known. It's out of time that my decision is taken. If you call that decision to which my whole life gives entire consent. What's, somebody paraphrase that. What's he saying? You're judging by the world and not the world's results. Death is death. Uh, whether it's from the leopard or the priest and the, yeah. Can anybody flush that at all? You argue by results as this world does to settle and act if it be good or bad. Can anybody flush that out at all? I'm just saying you're, you're, you're still out there on the wheel. And you're, you're, you're judging things by the spiritual world. Well, by man. You're judging it by man. By results. What'd you say, Don? You're forgetting about the spiritual world. The world of Eternity. Yeah. yeah. In which case, death is death. Well, in life is life. I mean, I don't don't leave. We're asked to judge things by attorney. How many people actually do that in their business affairs? Just to mean to throw that out. In the recent book that um, Benedict wrote, um, World Culture, I think is the name. You, you guys would enjoy it if you read it. He's making a case um, for the loss of our moral sense of ourselves in the modern world, particularly in the West. And he makes the argument that there are bishops. He, he he's got a, some bishops. You could name them who argue that all moral issues are circumstantial. It depends on the circumstances. And Benedict's saying there are good and evils that are always good and evil, absolute, no matter what. Because the modern world is relative in that sense, that it looks at things and treats them circumstantially. So it does away with any moral absolute categories anymore. I think that's what Thomas is saying. You, 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 you understand things by their results, practically according to the world which means you bring a relativism to what you're doing. They're going to they're gonna look at him as being stupid right now when what he's saying is, I'm measuring my acts by another order, a transcendent order. They don't get it. But who determines the absolute? Who, well, God's helped us. Right. And we're trying to figure it out ourselves. We get, some people get closer to the absolute than others. You know? Yeah. I mean, part, I mean, one answer to that is the Ten Commandments from God are, you know, Worship me with all your. That's, Are they absolutes? Yes. Yeah, can we not go? Because that's. Let's stay in the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's take it up. But what Thomas is saying is that um, 
our tendency is to look at things in terms of their results, practical results in the world, and so often we can't see a deeper meaning because we don't see the connection between that and a higher order. And that's what he says um, when, he, when he says, it's not in time that my death shall be known, it's out of time that, um, that my decision is taken. His reference is God and his will, not what men want of him. And I have conquered, we have only to conquer now by suffering, this is the easier victory, now is the triumph of the cross. Now open the door. I command, open the door. This is the moment when Thomas joins himself to, to Christ on the cross. How many people understood that? I mean, the, the, you know, the, the Jews were awaiting a Savior. He presents himself as one, and he's on a cross. He calls himself God, and he's dying. How many people understood the significance of that? Um, so... He dies. I'm going to just um, briefly recount the the knights' arguments. Thomas is killed. The knights step forward to present their case. It's almost like a, a legal arena now. Yeah. I, and so I want to ask you all what you make of this. The first one comes out on page. Sorry. Eighty. making their case, and he says, I think we'll agree, um, oh wait, sorry, no, sorry, 78, 78, he said, you're all Englishmen, you have this sense of fair play, I respect such things, I share them, nevertheless, I appeal to your sense of honor, you're Englishmen, I'm not myself qualified um, to speak, I'm a man of action, not of words, and he turns it over to De Tracy. Third night, he said, I'm afraid I'm not anything like such an experienced speaker as my friend. His point is that everything they've done is disinterested. At the top of the page, 79. Um, it's this, what we've done, whatever you may think of it, we have been perfectly disinterested. That is, they stood to gain nothing. They didn't do it for personal motives. They were completely disinterested, selfless. Um, we're not getting anything out of this. We have much more to lose than to gain. We're four plain Englishmen who put our country first. And then he goes on to say they had to drink a good bit to get themselves up to the task, and they did that. Um, we know perfectly well how things will turn out. King Henry, God bless him, we have to say for reasons of state, that he never meant this to happen. So they exonerated their king. Um, even when reasonable people come out to see that the archbishop had to be put out of the way, Personally, I had a tremendous admiration for him. You must have noticed what a good show he put up at the end. They won't give us any glory. Um, but he reminds them they were completely disinterested. What he's doing is appealing to our sense that if they did it in a disinterested spirit, there's some value to it. Um, the first knight comes back and introduces the second knight now. And he says... Now, the worthy archbishop, whose good qualities I very much admired, has thoroughly been presented as the underdog. But is this the case? What he did was go against the king, and he made it impossible to live with him. And sometimes violence, he says, is necessary. And this is one of those cases. Um, the moment that Becket, at the king's instance, had been made archbishop, he resigned the office of chancellor. He became more priestly than the priest he ostensibly and offensively adopted. An aesthetic manner of life, he affirmed immediately that there was a higher order than that which our king, and he is the king's servant, had for so many years striven to establish. Um, 
he should have made the king, put the king first. Um, at the top of 82, unhappily there are times when violence is the only way in which social justice can be secured. Go down again, he says, now if you've thought about this seriously, you have only one conclusion to come to. We have been instrumental in bringing about the state of affairs that you approve. We have served your interest, we merit your applause, and if there's any guilt, what, whatever in the matter, you must share it with us. Um, the first night comes in to, um, to introduce the um, fourth night again, and he says, if, the, he had only, if Beckett had only combined the two offices, Archbishop, Chancellor, everything would have gone differently. And once again, he's making the case, I mean, implicitly, we understand that if that had been the case, Henry's power over the clergy would have increased enormously. And that's exactly what Beckett didn't want. This egotism of Beckett's, he's saying, was out of control. Um, he says, I have unimpeachable evidence to the effect that before he left France, he clearly prophesied in the presence of numerous witnesses that he had not long to live and that he would be killed in England. He used every means, that is, he's using the appearance of a martyrdom to get things turned towards him so that people will view things in that way. But they're also appealing to the divine right of kings. King is the chosen person of right. God on, and so he has the divine power on earth. That's Which, you know, they're fighting over. Yeah. It's really interesting. As a theory, that doesn't, that doesn't come in. It doesn't be, it's not made explicit until under James. Although it's implied everywhere. James? King James in, in, in the Charles. Renaissance room. Well, I mean, at least it was articulated then, but, but, it, but it runs through the whole line. If anybody's not aware of that, just remember that um, the, the, the Jews wanted a king. And God said, no, you don't, because if you get a king, he's going to do this and this. And they said, no, we want a king. And God said, um, give them what they want. So there seems to be a sanction from God in the choice of a king at that point, as if the king is divinely sanctioned in his powers. Um, it, becomes, it becomes an explicit means of argument late in the Renaissance. Um, even though it's, it, it's just implied. I mean, it's there. But um, This is what he just, just did not want to happen. He insisted while we were still inflamed with wrath that the door should be open. It's his fault. He incited us. Um, so the knight thanks them all for their presentations and then says to us, the audience, um, there's no more to be said. I suggest that you now disperse quietly to your homes. Please be careful not to loiter in groups and street corners and do nothing that might provoke any. Remember, this is back in um, Beckett's time, but as a stage play, it's being presented to us. The point here is that lots of people would have been so infuriated by what just took place, actually, that they would have gone out in the streets and rioted. Against the, against the king. Um, the, the priests um, and the chorus finish the play on page 87. The, the pre, I mean, the chorus has some stunning lines here that are philosophically profound. On 86, only in thy light thy glory is declared, even in that which denies thee. The darkness declares the glory. Even darkness implies light. The darkness declares the glory of light. Those who deny thee could not deny if thou did not exist. I think that's wonderful. 
the fact that you're denying somebody is implicitly raises the question whether or not they exist. Um, for if it were, and their denial is never complete. For if it were, they would themselves not exist. You take away God, and you have no means for explaining anything. On eighty-seven, the chorus acknowledges that now that Beckett's blood has been spilled and joined with Christ, that will be holy ground. So the day, Stephen, the day, Christmas, the day, the holy martyrs, the day. This is the day. Now. There is holy ground, wait, for whatever a saint has dwelt, wherever a martyr has given his blood for the blood of Christ, there is holy ground, and the sanctity shall not depart it. Not when tourists walk over it, not when people come out of interest who will see nothing there but a shrine. For those of faith, it will be holy ground. That won't change. From such ground springs that which forever renews the earth, though it's forever denied. Therefore, O God, we thank Thee who has given such a blessing to Canterbury. Forgive us, O God, we acknowledge ourselves as type of the common man, of the men and women who shut the door and sit by the fire. That is, all these ordinary things that they're going to describe now. The ordinary tasks of their daily life, um, they've been enriched by what a saint has done. Um, and they say, another stunning line, who, um, of the men and women who shut the door and sit by the fire, who fear the blessing of God, who fear the blessing of God, the loneliness of the night of God, the surrender required, the deprivation inflicted, who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God. Just for a second, why would they fear the justice of God more than the injustices of men? Who fear well, for one thing, men it's are not <laughs> rational, and they will do things for their own end, where God would be rational and impartial and wouldn't judge them just on some one act. Or yeah, because they're afraid of yeah. of not holding standing up. I mean, to to, to God's justice. Um, who fear the injustice of men less than the justice of God, who fear the hand at the window, the fire in the thatch, the first in the tavern, the push into the canal, less than we fear the love of God. Again, why would they fear the love of God? Because it asks something. Hmm? Because it asks something. Yeah. Um, a fear of not measuring up to it, you know, that couldn't meet up to it. Um, it's wonderful. I mean, again, it, there's this sort of if you think about the change in the chorus from the opening where they said, go back to France, we saw earlier they were asking for Thomas's blessing. There's this wonderful sense of a, I don't know to call it a vulnerability, a, a contrition. And God said, I want a contrite heart. You know, there's a spirit of contrition that runs through much, so much of what they do. It ends with them saying, sin of the world is upon our heads, that the blood of the martyrs and the agony of the saints is upon our heads. They take it on themselves. When Easter comes, you know in the readings, we take the part of people killing God. That's the part we take on. We acknowledge we're implicated in his death. We have to carry that. Um, is upon our heads, Lord, have mercy upon us. That's our natural response if we're implicated. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Blessed Thomas, pray for us. We need help. Here's my last question. I'll stop on it. Um, what do you make of the lawyer's defense 
when it's clear that they're speaking to us at the end. Hmm, or sorry, the knights. Sorry, the knights. Did they make their case? And what are the, some of the ironies about the way they make their case? Those of you who remember Hamlet should see Claudius here. The king, you remember. Well, they blame everybody. But wait, wait, wait. <laughs> if you could wait a second. What do you guys say? I think they're implicating us. Yeah. Go, Don. Where? What? Because we're participants in it. Sorry? We're participants in it. Yeah. You know, it, it's the state that's uh, doing this for the good of everybody. And we're the state. We have served, we have served your interests. By the way, those of you who read Hamlet, you remember if you do, Claudius makes his opening address when he's killed the king. Nobody knows it. Hamlet will learn it from the, his, the ghost of his father, the king's brother. And the king speaks to it, it, everybody. It's the State of the Union. He's going he's gonna to set out the course. And at one point he says, I have taken your advice all along for that thanks or something. I can't, and he goes on. What he does in that light is implicate everybody. So if, anybody, if anything happens to implicate him... Every, I mean, it's a, ma it's a master stroke of Machiavellian politics. The guy here is saying, um, we're serving your interests. I mean, Don put it well, it's the state. We have served your interests. We merit your applause. And if there's any guilt, whatever in the matter, you must share it with us. So it seems to me, here's the question the play leaves us with. Beckett's been martyred. The knights have made their case. They've justified themselves. They've given every reason to justify what they do. And they've done it now in a way that implicates us. So the question is, where are we? <laughs> I keep asking that question. Where are we? Are we with the state? Are we with them? How implicated are we in that death? Remember, the I thought Doc's question earlier was really right on. What are they consenting to? You know, is the consent that the chorus makes the same one that Thomas makes? Um, where are we? So, and I don't think that's an accident on Eliot's part. It, it's his way of asking us to look at ourselves and where we stand. Is this holy ground? Is this a martyrdom? Where are we? Did we participate in it? The, um, Stephen the day, the holy innocence the day, Christmas the day. Do we live our days um, fully participating with Christ, trying to die, give up our lives, so that whatever we're doing costs our lives in our efforts to bring love and justice together. Because remember, that's what this is about. Again, question of justice, um, whether what's being done is just, and whether a love is the reason for doing it. Obviously, it's not. It's hate and, and injustice. <coughs> and Beckett's effort to answer that through God's will. So where are we on... Where are we on all those questions in our own lives? Stephen the day, Christmas the day, Holy Innocence the day. Where are we? In, and the priest, God, it's just, what day is it today? What day is it today? Where are we in our daily lives? I think that's the question we're all meant to ask at the end. Did well, well, I think he, 
he's put us back in a timeless, uh, a timeless realm that we are participating in the evolution of history and consciousness. Hopeful. And so what's happening here is that any good play or any good piece of literature is going to make us confront that that history is alive and present now, and that we are, you know, I mean, I mean, this is like, look what's going on in this country right now. We're, you know, who's telling the truth? Where's the word of the lies? Everybody's, you know, everybody's hating each other. It's like Beckett is a great underlie about what's going on. That battle between, you know, church and state is there, and uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's so uncanny. That's what it's uh, it's almost like. I mean, he's there's an under. It's almost like talking about an undertone that that's in history. And we're in it. We don't know we're getting swept along. Yeah. And he, you know, he makes you aware you're up to your neck in it. <laughs> yeah. I think most of us are like Patton in the movie. The objective of war is not to die for your country, but make the other bastard die for his country. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was that? And I think that's where most of us are. <laughs> Jay, come on. <laughs> As I read it, I couldn't help thinking about Martin Luther King. The last speech he gave had a premonition of his death. I've been to the mountaintop, and mm. he was discredited, mm. actually, before his death by people on both ends of the political spectrum. <coughs> and then after he was killed, there was a collective guilt. My God, what have we done? What have, how did we contribute to causing this yeah. thing? Yeah. There's a lot of I mean, a good, it would, you know, the, the soldier that dies at the hands of the enemy refuses to denounce God. Are, are they all martyrs, too? One of the, one of the things that, I mean, this is a, well, I don't know, I, be careful. I just would ask for some care here. We're, we're, asked, we're, asked, we're, we're, asked, we're asked not to speak for God. Hold on, just hold on. We're asked not to speak for God. The church is really clear in that. One of the things that Christ did that, that you're, I don't think you find in Islam or Judaism from what my readings of the Quran and the Old Testament, and you know, Christ says, um, you know that murdering somebody is wrong. I'm telling you, if you've murdered somebody in your heart, you know that adultery is wrong. I'm telling you, if you lust, you know, the whole movement of Christ is into the interior, which is the most obscure part of who we are. It's not who we appear to other people or what we say. It's what's inside that's so hard to get to. Um, the church makes its decisions on these things based on whatever evidence they have on that interior. Because we can so often misread the fact that a guy dies, even in Christ, does not make him a martyr. Um, 
getting to the interior of a person and knowing his motives is a, is, is a near impossible thing. Um, Freud thought he made it easier. I think he made it harder. Getting to the spiritual interior is, is next to impossible. I mean, only God can read the heart finally. We're told to be careful of that in everything we do. So it infinitely complicates this question about martyrdom. You know, a guy can die living for his faith and seem to be martyr and not. We don't know what's in his soul. And if a, die, if a guy kills himself and blows up other people, it's a question of how much he does it in love and how much for hate. Christ is saying, love your enemies. I mean, there, there's, there are such depths of rational resources in Christianity that ask us to look into things and do it with some care because we so often misread each other. So, anyway, next week, we start Dostoevsky, the first volume. <laughs> you know that first big copy you have? That's one of three or four. Don't worry, Amazon has volume two. <laughs> Basically, it, it's cheaper than volume one. <laughs> <laughs>